You know, which is interesting because, you know, Hollywood doesn't have a great reputation for how it treats people. And so my whole passion is how do you kind of show that you can be successful and also be kind. And so if you bring those two together, you can, that's, you know, a winning formula because people want to be around you. You know, how do you land Nolan Gasser? There's no reason Nolan should ever want to work with me. You know, he, you know he's a god. <laughs> you know, I, there's no one I look up to more than this man. And he decided to join us. And then... Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I interview innovators, leaders, and uncommonly high achievers. Today on the show, we've got Andrew Tite, CEO of Catch Data. If you missed part one, please go back and hear about basically the, the work they're doing to figure out why you like the movies you like. And, and so why everyone else around the world likes the movies they like so that these companies who spend billions of dollars on marketing can actually use their money. How do I do for an elevator pitch there? Uh, I mean, yeah, can, you're hired. I'm glad that was recorded. I'm going to write it down when I get home. <laughs> So, you know, in the last show, we talked about you producing a Tyler Perry movie when you're at Lionsgate. And to me, it's so interesting to have people solving problems they actually know something about, you know, like the venture capitalists, like the idea of loving people who are solving their own problem. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about your time in the entertainment space and then how that is translating to the way you're approaching things where maybe someone who's a pure, has a pure tech background, maybe had, maybe wouldn't have seen that kind of an insight. What's another one of the, the fun movies you got to produce at Lionsgate or one of the fun projects you got to be a part of? Yeah, yeah. The the one that was the big kind of marquee one for me was a movie called Norma the North. It was one of the first movies I, I got to do really start to finish. And I was an associate producer on that. So I, I got to, you know, learn a lot. And then when that movie was finishing up, went on to produce, you know, Norma the North 2, 3, 4, Alpha and Omega, 5, 6, 7, you know, Rock Dog 2. And so it was, a, it was a blast doing that. But what I loved about Norm is something that you need to know. So these are kids animation, for example for example. And the thing that's interesting about the animation space is, well, interesting about the entertainment space. And this is something that I had to learn. So if you think about Hollywood, right, we think about an action movie. There's a big difference. And we as audience members, just random audience members, know the difference between a big budget Michael Bay action movie like Ambulance that just came out and, you know, a medium budget action movie or a low budget action movie or a Sundance action movie. Right. And then there's action comedy and action romance and action drama. There's so many sub genre mixes, categories, whatever. Right. And the audience knows what they're getting when they're going into that big budget. They know when they're going to that low budget. They know. Now let's look at animation. Animation, I would say, breaks down into about three-ish different categories. We have art house, which is like stop motion, you know, really cool 2D stuff. Think of like Klaus would be a great example on Netflix. Beautiful film, highly recommend. And then you have anime, which we're all very aware, aware of. It's, you know, huge. It's blowing up in the industry right now and around the world, really. And then there's Pixar. So there's art house, anime, and Pixar. What does that mean? So that means that everyone, when they see CGI animation, so computer-generated image animation like a Pixar film, they compare it to Pixar. I don't know if you know, Pixar budgets are, they have about $150, $200 million to make a movie. That, no one else really has that. <laughs> you don't really have that. So you're being compared to a $200 million budget, which is not really fair. Because, you know, with Norm, we had between a five and a $10 million budget. And, you know, you read, it's it's not a very well 
reviewed movie on Rotten Tomato. But like some of the stuff that you'll read is like, oh, you know, this doesn't look nearly as good as Frozen. I'm like, yeah, no, 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 duh. Like Frozen had, you know, you know, 100 times the budget or, you know, 50 times the budget. It's not a fair comparison, but people still make it. And so then you have to be very, very strategic. And I think we did this expertly well. So, you know, Norm, we knew that it had an audience. And that audience was going to be kind of Walmart shoppers. That was really the, the audience we decided to target because they were still buying DVDs. And realistically, in the low-budget animation space, it was a DVD market. And so, you know, we made a lot of creative decisions to target that audience. And in that process, we lost some jokes, added some new jokes, changed some characters to really kind of fit that audience. And in the end, the movie did fairly well. You know, it was, you know, pretty profitable in the box office. And then we had it, we made a killing at Walmart for the next three and a half years, which is pretty interesting, right? And so realistically, we were smart in that decision-making. But during this process, it was learning. And I realized that we were probably some of the only ones that were taking this much care. And really, it was still wild guesswork. Wild. You know, what do I think Walmart shoppers will like? I don't, I don't know. I'm going to look at other films that might have done well in Walmart and see if I can deduce what they have. But, you know, it was not a science at all. It was, a, you know, guesswork. And then you see the marketing for it. And there's this marketing method called spray and pray. I'm going to spray it out everywhere and then just pray that it finds its audience. And I mean, that's not a good way to do it. And so it was in that process that I kind of realized that there was some, there was a huge disconnect here. You know, the, it, we need to do it better. And, you know, that the way we decided to do it better was me retiring from producing and starting this. And yeah, I've done. You know, what I think is interesting about that is, you know, somebody who's like a, an auditor at KPMG or something, right, may not have like quite the level of pickiness on what kind of projects they want to audit. You know, right. <laughs> right. Maybe, but but maybe a little less perfect. In Hollywood, like I think about my friends in Hollywood. We lived in Cal Southern California for six, seven, eight years myself. And, you know, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of image management involved as well. Is like partially people want to make creative, partially people want to be seen as being successful in Hollywood, right? And then you you look at like the capitalist side of like the clear income opportunity, like as a return on investment that you created, but but not by making Oscar bait. You know what I mean? Not by not by like the the award show circuit that will have everybody think you're cool. And yet what a service to the shareholders of Lionsgate to be to like be willing to go after a market that hadn't had the level of thought applied to it. And I think that's very interesting and and probably somewhat uncommon. And yeah, well, I, I, you know, honestly, I credit a lot of that to my former boss, Ken Katsumoto, who's a genius when it comes to this kind of stuff, taught me kind of everything I know about kind of going into that space. So it, it is interesting because, you know, it was the model that we worked on, which I thought was just so cool, is do a big theatrical release where we release in, you know, 1,500, 2,000 screens worldwide, worldwide release, and you build, basically, you manufacture IP, if you will. But then we could do a lot of direct-to-streaming, direct-to-DVD sequels. So, you know, before I joined, they did Alpha and Omega, the original. And then I think it was seven or so sequels to Alpha and Omega that were straight to DVD. And they made money. You know, they made 
pretty good money. And then we did Norm of the North and then straight to DVD and then Raptor. And, and obviously this model has changed with the, you know, the adoption of streaming, but it's still, I thought it was a really cool model because it was build a piece of content, create an audience, know that audience, target that audience with sequels. And, you know, it, it wasn't the most highbrow stuff in the world. And yeah, every once in a while. Yeah. Well, you think about the willingness, like the willingness to subvert our egos hmm. and like how profitable it is to subvert our egos. Do you know what I mean? Completely. Right? Like you look, Lionsgate has made some pretty cool movies that probably were nowhere near as profitable as those animations. Correct. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, I don't want to call out any movies in particular, but, you know, at the same time, it is, it, especially if you look at, you know, a direct, you know, return on investment, because there, it just, if you, if you spend a hundred million dollars on a movie and, you know, ultimately you make $20 million in profit, that's a, that, you know, that's actually not bad in Hollywood, which is, but if you spend very little and you make that amount of profit, that's a really big deal. And so, you know, I have to be proud of what we were able to do. And, but it is, you do have to let your, leave your ego at the door, but you have to do that when you're starting a company to, because much like auditioning for a movie, there are a lot of people that are going to say no. When you pitch an idea to an investor, I mean, gosh, I, I can't tell you how many no's we've heard. Yeah. Well, I'm actually interested in some of the yeses. I'm interested in, you know, there's a lot of people listening to the show that are either investment fund managers or CEOs of, you know, entrepreneurial CEOs and fundraising is a subject that comes up a lot when I'm talking to listeners, when I'm talking to our listeners, right? Mm -hmm. Be in person or they come. And I'm interested in any of the lessons you learned in Hollywood, in movie producing, in influencing people and pitching that you feel like did you service when you were raising your startup dollars? Yeah, passion. You have to, you, you have to really believe in what you're selling. If you don't, it comes through. And and it's all, it is all storytelling. You know, whether Peter Goober wrote a book, Tell to Win, that in Peter, I don't know if you know who he is. He's one of the, he's one of the owners of the Golden State Warriors. He owns Mandalay Pictures and did pictures or entertainment, but used to be the head of Sony. So did some, you know, did Rain Man, did, you know, a bunch of great movies. But he wrote a book called Tell to Win, which is, a, it's all about, you know, whether you're pitching a company, whether you're pitching a movie, how do you tell this story in a way that's compelling? And that's all it is. It's just telling a compelling story and, you know, you know, getting people emotionally invested, right? And so we've had, you know, a ton of success. We've raised a decent amount of money as a company so far. And we're, you know, we'll be going off to that journey again pretty soon. But the the whole the whole thing that we try and show is show, you know, where you are, but also what is the beautiful vision of this in the future? What is, and, and then how are we going to get there? Right. And so that's, you know, I'm, this is not, you know, rocket science, new, new insight, but I think it's really important to know that you do, that does work. And there's a reason that it's commonly stated is because it does work. When, when you take people on that journey and they can see where you're going, you know, you can convert that into a yes. Well, it's interesting because we all like to think that works on other people, but not on ourselves, right? Like we think facts and figures are going to convince because we like to tell ourselves that's what would convince us. And no, people buy the dream. It, it's interesting. There's, you probably know this, but there was, you know, after 50 years of Harvard professors trying to tell everybody we're rational beings and we make rational decisions, like look at economics, all these things based on assuming humans will do what's rationally in their best favor. It's like, have you ever met a human? Right. But this guy wrote this book called 
called Descartes' error. And in 97, basically, they figured out like, hey, the, the old part of your brain, the croc brain is where stuff gets filtered when it comes in and your brain says like, hey, is this a threat or not? It's like, you know, those uh, YouTube videos where the high school kid jumps out of the trash can in the cafeteria and his friend decks him and knocks him out and everybody laughs. Yeah. It's like that. Hey, before conscious thought even happens, like if it's a threat, react, right? Yeah. But if you, you sneak past the traffic cop there, it goes to the logic lawyer part of our brain that does do facts and figures and all these things, right? And that's where we invent our sales pitches is this facts and figures and the logical reasons and whatever. And anyways, this guy, I believe it was an fMRI machine. He's, he, He's measuring what parts of the brain lights up when different things happen. And he finds out like that's not the last part of your brain that lights up when you make a decision. It's actually the limbic system where your emotions are housed. So it's almost like you have to get your idea. You have to sneak it in past the traffic cop without kicking the th threat tripwire. Right. And then it has to be good enough on the logic lawyer side. But the, like the neocortex, the frontal lobe in the brain is like how you drive yourself nuts when you can argue both sides of something forever. And it's like eventually like the emotional judge will say, this is how I feel about that logic. And it's interesting, like how many times I've tried to logic somebody into a decision. You know, I feel like as the CEOs of our companies, I'm just top sales guy, you know, and it's like if something makes like logically, I know I should drink eight glasses of water and should have got up and exercised for an hour today as well. You know, does anybody think that happened? Because it didn't. <laughs> Right. So I like what you're saying, even though it's even though people say it all the time, I think that it's very easy for me to want to sell facts and figures and to not pull it back to what's the emotions about those facts and figures that's going to get a check written. Right. You know, it's the so here here's some stats, right? So here's some facts and figures. So if as an industry, we spend $50 billion, right? They also say that they waste about 40 to 50% of their marketing spend. Right. You know, Universal spends roughly two billion dollars a year marketing content. If they waste 40 percent of that, that's 800 billion, 800 million dollars a year that they could light on fire and would make no difference. Imagine if you can improve that by five percent, 10 percent. It's interesting, right? That's a lot of money. Interesting. Or if you're working with a streaming platform and if you're working with a streaming platform and you can help them find 4,000 more subscribers, you can, you can pay for it. <laughs> it pays for itself. And 4,000 is not a lot. Imagine if you could find 100,000 or a million. You know, you know it, it makes me think, so I, like millions of other people, love Warren Buffett, okay? Yeah. And one of his biggest followers is this guy named Howard Marks, who manages Oak Tree Capital. It's like $165 billion merged with, with Brookfield recently, right? And he, he is really hard on people. He's like, do you think you're going to be a, an above-average investor out of hubris, like out of ego? Or can you objectively say you have some sort of information edge? Because if you're trading in the same market as other people with the same information, maybe you should have a look in the mirror before you go claiming you're going to do better than everyone else. It's like, you know, reliably outperforming has to do with having an information edge. And that's why he he trades in the credit market. He does private real estate. He does things that are not, that are a more, more opaque market where there is a chance to learn something first, to have an information edge, you know, where public securities are so com completely researched and it's all the tip of somebody's finger tips on their Bloomberg mm -hmm. terminal, right? Well, think about your world, you know, how well will a movie do in Slovakia? How well will the movie do in Brazil? Like, that is a very opaque world. And yet an information edge is going to happen. And probably everybody listening today can think about one part of their industry that could use it, you know, that with some extra time and effort, they could show up with an within information edge. 
Well, if you think about it, then, you know, as a company, the next, our next step, which we talked about, Jess, is, you know, yes, we're establishing ourselves in the entertainment industry. But once you understand, once you can create taste-based audience segments, you can pretty easily step out of just the entertainment industry and work with the brands and the agencies. You know, think about, you know, Nike, for example. Let's say Nike is creating a watch. All right, they're creating a new watch. And, you know, when you think about it, Nike's, they they know who they're going after. They, they have their list of, you know, target customers, right? All right, so now they think that the best way to do this ad is, you know, a, you know, a 40-year-old guy training for a marathon and or a 40-year-old woman training for a marathon. It doesn't really matter. But it's someone training for a marathon. They're achieving their goal and it's all tracked on their app on their watch. Now, imagine if you actually knew the taste profile of the potential audiences. And in that, you learn that there's a strong, you know, they over-index with a father-daughter relationship, a healthy father-daughter relationship, and a bright and uplifting mood, and a tale of family reconciliation. So maybe instead of showing a commercial where this guy is training for the marathon, how about you show this commercial of the father or mother coaching the kid's soccer team and have the watch on. That connects more emotionally with the people that might actually buy that watch, right? That is the power. If you understand taste, you can step into any industry to improve it. You know, I just think there's so much you can do once you get in that place, right? <laughs> so I know we're winding down here for part two. Maybe my my question would be this. You look at you look at Hollywood and it's you know, the joke is like every every waiter you've ever had is is actually an actor. He's just doing this whole thing, waiting for things to pick up. You know, you want to talk about a place that has no no undersupply of people who want to work there, right? Like you made it to the top in you made it to a very desirable role in something that has intense competition. And then you switch to another arena and you actually have raised these large amounts of money and landed these, you know, I know you're not going to say the names on here, but you told me, you know, I know who some of your clients are and they're incredibly impressed. Yeah, well, what I can say is, you know, we just landed a, a multi-million dollar three-year contract with the AMC Network, which is pretty awesome. Thank you. And we have, you know, other clients that are from these other major companies. Right. I'm interested. There's so many people in, in Hollywood that would have liked to have become producer on a Tyler Perry movie that would have liked to have been, been in charge of millions of dollar budgets for a company like Lionsgate. There's so many other people that would like to be a tech CEO with millions of dollars of funding and, you know, internationally known clients. You have accomplished things that so many other people haven't. What's what's something you've done different to achieve that? Yeah, it's interesting. The two two things. One is I am insanely competitive. I've, you know, I've been a competitive, yeah, I was a rower in high school and college, but I'm only five, 10 and three quarters, but who's counting? But in a sport where the average guy in my boat was, you know, six, three, six, four. And so I was always at a disadvantage. I'm dyslexic. So I'm always at a disadvantage. And so I was, I've been, I, I know how to work hard. I know what it takes to, you know, the best thing someone can tell me is that's not possible because I'm like, huh, joke's on you. You know, there's always a solution. You just need to find it. And so I think that that really, you know, I know people are, everyone else out there knows how to work hard as well. But I think being able to actually work hard is really important. But I think what I do differently is I pair that, you know, work ethic with a personality of like a Ted Lasso. You know, that I think that you should always be kind. That's something that I, that's our number one core value at Catch is kindness, you know, which is interesting because, you know, Hollywood doesn't have a great reputation for how it treats people. And so my whole passion is how do you kind of show that you can be successful and also be kind. And so I, if you bring those two together, you can, that's, you know, a winning formula because people want to be around you. You know, how do you 
you land Nolan Gossard, there's no reason Nolan should ever want to work with me. You know, he, you know, he's a god. You know, I, there's no one I look up to more than this man. And he decided to join us and then to have other people, you know, to have Brett Danaher, who's one of the best, you know, entertainment data scientists in the world, decide to want to join our team. And then once that happens, you bring more and more people together. It's you're building this team. There's a, I think it's in the book, Good to Great. They say, get the right people on the bus, right? And I think that there is nothing um, more important than finding those. If you get, if you, all you need is one and then you get another because people want to work together, right? And you do that. And, you know, the, the recipe for success, it's not that, not that hard. Make, oh, the other one is make, I, I'm very good at making my own luck. I can't tell you how many times people are like, how did that happen? I'm like, I don't know. I can start talking to this guy. And he happens to be, you know, head of television at Warner Brothers. Or, you know, I got stuck in a middle seat flying home from Cannes and the person on my left and my right were the two heads of foreign for Sony. You know, how does that happen? You know, you just be open to talk uh, and you meet some, you can meet some great people. That's great. Well, thanks for all the time with us. Why don't you give us the, the website one more time and, uh, and your social? Yeah, it's www.catchdata.com, K-A-T-C-H-D-A-T-A.com. And my social, you know, you can find me on, on LinkedIn, Andrew Tight, T-I-G-H-T. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for doing this. Of course, man. Talk to you soon, okay? Yeah, bye everybody. <laughs>